What's up, my friends? I come to you from LA, where I've been spending the last couple of months podcasting and working to sell a TV show. I'm getting packed up to go out to Burning Man for the next week, where I will be podcasting and having some fun in the sun. I'm going to be camping with Bounce Camp at 8.30 and G. So if you're going to Burning Man, stop by my camp. I'd love to meet you. One of the coolest people who I've met so far in Los Angeles is the upcoming guest, Adam Skolnick. He is a a journalist. He is an author. His work has been featured everywhere from Wired, New York Times, Men's Health, Outside Magazine. Pick up the latest issue of Playboy. He has the cover story in it called High Speed American Dreams about Elon Musk, the Hyperloop, and hate crimes in the tech sector. He's a really beautiful writer. Uh, he just came out with a new book called Indolirium, which is a poetry book, and it's 81 verses uh, that resembles Jack Kerouac's Mexico City Blues. He also authored the book One Breath about the life and death of America's greatest freediver, Nicholas Mavoli. Um, he just got back from, from uh, Mongolia, where he wrote the latest Lonely Planet Travel Guide. The man is amazing. He is so prolific, and his work spans such a wide range. I felt like we could have talked for six hours, and it still wouldn't have been enough. So look forward to having him back on the podcast. Uh, The conversation went all over the place. We talked about his most recent article in Playboy. We talked about freediving. I pressed him a little bit on his process pitching stories and how he's been able to make this life work for himself. I'll link to Adam's most recent work on my website, kyle.surf slash podcast underneath the show notes. If you like this podcast, head over to my website, kyle.surf and donate on Patreon. Whatever you can give, I really appreciate it. It helps keep this show going. I also have it set up where all of my donors get entered into a monthly raffle where I give away gear for my surf sponsors, including Patagonia Provisions and RPM Fitness. So you could donate 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever you've got, and you could have a fitness kit or a bunch of tasty food sent to your doorstep. If you don't have money to support the podcast, I totally get it. There are a bunch of other ways that you can support the show that don't involve your wallet. Just talking about it, sharing it with a friend, seriously, that helps so much. Uh, Giving a rating on on iTunes, uh, using my Amazon affiliate program, going over to the website kyle.surf and clicking the Amazon link, bookmarking it, and then using that for future purchases allows me to get a percentage of your purchase at no cost to you. So a ton of different ways to support the podcast, and I really appreciate all of you who participate in that. All right, without further ado, I bring you Adam Skolnick. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave and you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Here we go. <laughs> so I was uh, reading your your article about Elon Musk last night. Ah. And then uh, right before I went to bed, uh, I saw an Instagram video that my friend had posted um, 
about a great white shark because there are a ton of great white sharks in Santa Cruz right now. And he was on this catamaran and he reached out and he actually touched the great white shark. And then last night I had a dream that I was on a catamaran with Elon Musk (laughs) and he jumped into the ocean and a shark grabbed him and pulled him down. And it was, it was a situation where it was a, like a, a, a boat, party right and i was like oh no elon's gone oh my god and then elon musk comes up with part of the shark in his mouth there you go that let that be a warning to rex tillerson and the <laughs> fossil fuel industry exactly exactly it was this big like go elon moment yeah. and uh and i woke up and over breakfast this morning i put the pieces together that it was because of your article that it had prompted <laughs> elon musk in my dream i wish i'd written something that good yeah yeah it could have only come in a dream yes 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 um that's pretty good but you know there is no stopping elon musk i don't think and yeah not even a great white shark not even a great white shark and that's a good thing because um you know he's uh hopefully taking us into this future world where we're looking at sustainable transportation in a way that's um can can help everybody that's what i love about you know like i actually have this innate distrust of wealthy people that's why i could never really figure out why people thought billionaire trump was a good idea because like i don't trust billionaires just as a general rule why not um because i think that they're greedy (laughs) as a general rule i think if you're a billionaire that means you probably didn't give enough money to people who need it you know that's that's just my opinion. Obviously, it's probably uninformed, but that's how I feel about it. And um, but when you can make money doing things that are good for the world, then I'm all for it. So you know, I think that um, I think if Elon Musk is driven by some sort of ambition that might necess- that might include some greed, uh, at least he's going in a direction that's I think beneficial for society. So um, I'm always interested in what he's doing. That's how I ended up at SpaceX that day to kind of check out Hyperloop. It was my first experience of it. Yeah. What was the impetus for the the article that you wrote? So it's funny. I was actually driving, going to have lunch with my friend Chelsea Miller, who was uh, kind of regretting that she had turned down an opportunity to interview for Hyperloop One. Hyperloop One is one of a a handful, actually two main for-profit Hyperloop businesses that have coalesced um, in the wake of Elon Musk's white paper, which he released, um, you know, it's four years ago now or three years ago now. It was four years ago, and this was the open source blueprint. The open, yes, for uh, a transportation system from LA to San Francisco. That's right. So basically, the idea of um, you know, low, I guess, low atmosphere, kind of rail transport, but magnetically propulsed la- uh, transport in a tube where you suck out the air. So you have low atmosphere. It's just kind of, a, it's basically taking the concept of airplanes, which fly at, you know, 35,000 feet to reduce the atmosphere uh, so that you can, you have less resistance. You're doing that on your ground and you're in a tube and enclosed space and you suck that out. I was, so, I was reading your article yeah. uh, on a plane and I had never thought about why planes fly at that altitude. Yeah. It's smoother. There's less resistance. So it's both comfort, but also speed and fuel efficiency. And so, um, you know, there, there now, so in 19, I think it was in the 1910s, was the first guy who tried to do that on the ground 
Um, and then over the course of the decades, other people came back to that idea. And, you know, it's the same, that's the same concept of the tubes that are used in kind of in post offices, those old tubes where you suck it, even in office buildings have them and they suck down. It's the same idea, uh, but used in transport. And so he was basically reviving an idea that um, has been around for a while. And he created this, uh, it was a response to a ballot initiative about the high-speed rail, where everyone was all stoked here in California. You're California, I'm sure you were stoked. We were all stoked. LA to San Francisco, bullet train, we're finally going to join the rest of the world. Everyone thinks it's this big hero thing. And Elon Musk is like, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) And in terms of money and fuel efficiency and land use, it might be a terrible idea compared to Hyperloop. Um, But obviously... We have to go and prove that Hyperloop can work. So um, he comes up with this open source paper. He doesn't make it one of his businesses. He's busy enough, right? He's got SpaceX. He's got Tesla. He's got anything else he's, he's working got on. Boat parties on catamarans, he's, he's <laughs> taking down sharks he's taking in down his spare time. In his in his in in his mouth, you know, just like swallowing <laughs> sharks. Anyway, so he uh, he creates this this white paper and he puts it out open source and then these companies kind of get around it but no pods are developed um, nobody's developed a track to test them and so he sponsored this competition and and encouraged engineering schools around the around the country and around the world really hey guys we're going to have this competition international competition well one of uh, 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 ends up being 1200 schools around the world come up with uh, an application for this competition and it's basically they had to produce their own white paper their own blueprint based on what elon musk came up with and come up kind of tailor it to whatever they're trying to do tailor it to different locations around the world they could have even done la to san francisco if they wanted to there there wasn't a rule but like most of them took ownership and said hey we're university cincinnati which is the school i end up following in the in the story and so we're going to do cincinnati to chicago because that's what we need and uh so that's what they did so why didn't elon musk's uh idea just get funded and have it happen well, like, he did, he made it open source okay. because it, I think he's like, I want someone else to do this. Yeah, he was busy, and there's a t- lot to I just it. Don't have I mean, the time. well, first of all, you know, it's a new transportation technology. Right. So imagine in in this, you know, one of the two companies. There's Hyperloop One and um, Hyperloop. I think HTT. I'm I'm spacing on it. Hyperloop Tech. Yeah, Hyperloop Tech uh, Transport Technologies HTT, um, and they are international. And so what they're they're kind of a different than Hyperloop One, which is its own kind of. The, the, the corporate structure is, is is traditional, whereas they have people that work for them. They have engineers. They're doing it, and they're doing it in the desert between you know California, Nevada, that border area. That's where their test track that just they just opened um, is, and uh, so they've just started their test track. HTT is got uh, hundreds of engineers around the world working for free. Basically, they're working for equity, and their idea is to actually create a track in in Europe. In Eastern Europe, Central Europe, they're talking about um, a Brno to Slovakia track that uh, and they think it'll be easier to build a track that's real in, in a place where there's less red tape and less law, you know, legal issues to deal with. And so to, to create a, a new tech, a new transportation technology, I think it, it takes years. It takes you know, millions and millions of dollars. It's its own thing. I don't, I don't know. I can't speak for Elon Musk because he didn't actually go on the record with me personally about that. We, I don't really know why he decided not to take it on himself. Uh, but it could be that it's, it's, it's a long road and it's a kind of a dream. Right. And is this, was this an article that you're writing for Playboy? Yeah. So this is a Playboy story. It's out now. 
came out in the July issue. Um, and so what happened for me is, <clears throat> and the story isn't really just about Hyperloop, uh, I heard about this uh, technology and I thought, that's interesting. I want to check that out. And I found out about this competition. So Chelsea tells me about this thing. Two months later, I, I find out about this competition kind of like days before it starts. And so I get in touch with SpaceX PR and they say, sure, come on down, take a look. And it was a couple of days after uh, Trump signed the first Muslim ban if you remember that so it was it was kind of hot topic and I thought to be honest with you at the time Elon Musk was kind of on Trump's tech board you know that board you know that and he was like a consultant right, right. To, to Trump and he was meeting with him and among, along with other uh, uh, kind of chief chiefs of different tech companies Google and and everybody else that was there and so Facebook you know Sheryl Sandberg was there and so he was one of those and I thought, well, maybe I can get next to Elon Musk and get a quote, and it would just be like a kind of a simple story. And in the meantime, I can look at Hyperloop and see what's happening. But in the end, what what happened was uh, I met, I saw right there on the SpaceX, camp, SpaceX campus, there were 27 teams, and a lot of them came from the heartland of the United States, engineering schools from places like Pittsburgh and Cincinnati and, and you know, central Pennsylvania and other places and the states that tilted Trump. And uh, the majority of these students were uh, international students. A lot of them were Indian. Some were Jordanian. Um, and I just thought, I, I stopped at University of Cincinnati and I talked to a few of the guys there and I thought, you know, how cool is this? These international students are taking this technology and, and, and trying to make it work for the world. And, they're, and it's happening in states you wouldn't think of, you know, because at the time and we still are in such a divided place in our country. And I thought this is the kind of story I want to tell. I want to tell a story about something you wouldn't think would happen in a red state or, you know, you, right. like something that where you can you can show that we actually can come together and do some interesting things. Um, despite the politics. Uh, so I start, but at the same time, I'm thinking, how is it for them there? You know, because often I know in the, in, in the wake of 9-11, there were many attacks on Indian people here because uh, a lot of the people who commit hate crimes don't actually know the difference between a Middle Eastern person and an Indian person. So that has happened. Yeah, it's it a very unique uh, perspective that you took with the article. You kind of married two seemingly disconnected issues. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm there talking to them, and I, I wondered how life was for them, and they, they were kind of circumspect about it. They're like, oh, you know, it's okay so far. We're a little bit concerned, but... Um, but Concerned uh, with what? Just, you know, just the, the tenor of things, just the fact that there's this anti-immigrant yeah, the, president. the rhetoric. Yeah, that he won the election. Yeah. You know, he can't... He can't he, Whatever we, whether you're a supporter of his or not, I think it's very clear he he uh, was he wanted to control immigration. He wanted to do some things that could threaten somebody who say is an international student in the United States yeah. who wants to work here after graduation. And and what are the uh, visa policies that you need if you are an international student and you want to work here after uh, school? Yeah, well, I think. From a student's perspective, you can just come here. You know, if you can get into schools. Now, the reason there's a lot of Indian students coming here, I, I don't, I don't know about from China's perspective, but I imagine it's similar. But in India, it's easier to get into Harvard than it is to get into a, a good public university in India. Why is that? Because there are so many people. So it literally is easy for them to get into Harvard. So if you're wondering why so many international students are coming here, that's part of the reason. And so they and they are paying their freight. They are not, you know, often some get financial aid, but they're not getting full financial aid in their first years anyway. And often they're paying full price to come to engineering schools. So they're paying their way. They're supporting our schools. And so and then once they're here, though, once you're educated, 
you have 60 days after graduation to get a job. And if you get a job and they'll, they'll support an H-1B visa, which is a visa for a foreign worker, a high-tech foreign worker, skilled worker, um, then they can stay. You know, and if they don't get it in that 60 day period, they have to go. And is Trump revoking that? So Trump has been anti H-1B because that H-1B idea, which was a really good idea, it's a way to say, hey, we've educated talented people here. Let's keep them in in our economy. Let's help them generate uh, revenue for our economy in our country and create jobs and that kind of thing. And and we know that half of unicorn startups in this country have been founded by immigrant founders. Yeah, you know, we know that. What's right? a unicorn startup? Google would be one of okay. them. You know, that's a good example. Yeah, yeah. unicorns. Uh, you know, Elon Musk, Tesla, right? Okay. Yeah, you know, he's immigrant. Right. Yeah. So this, so so this visa uh, policy could dramatically impact the mines that are able to stay in the yes, U.S. Yes. and impact the future of transportation in the U.S. Right. And and so the the H one B debate is basically sixty minutes did an expose on it. Um, some. <clears throat> companies have been exploiting that and basically hiring employment agencies from India to bring over people who are educated in India to come and fill, fulfill jobs that are occupied by middle-aged Americans who then get downsized and they save money on on uh, salary and then have to train their replacements, okay, which so is obviously not a good idea and not the spirit of the law. And so those loopholes have to be closed. But to completely throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is kind of the the idea around uh, revoking H-1Bs or drastically reducing them, I think, is a mistake. So, so, But the story isn't really necessarily about advocating for the H-1B visa. It's really more about uh, life as an international student in the age, uh, the age that we're in now. Yeah, and yeah. you had a, a good line in the, the article about um, political rhetoric being tied to hate crimes. Right, and so basically what happened was I, I, I meet the students they are optimistic. They are really engaging, and I just and and we, I just really enjoyed meeting them. And then I thought, you know, how are things for them? And they were optimistic, but I was less less optimistic. And maybe I was in kind of a bad mood still because I think I hadn't woken up from the, <laughs> from the election yet. And uh, but anyway, I I leave the SpaceX competition. I think it would be really cool to follow those students. And then a month later, two Indian engineers, 32-year-old engineers, who are basically these same students, you know, seven to 10 years later, they were also uh, engineering school, engineering um, students in graduate school in America that ended up getting jobs at Garmin after they graduated. And, uh, and, and they were shot in a bar outside of Kansas City uh, where they worked, they worked at Garmin in, in Olathe, Kansas, and one of them died, and the other one survived. And I just thought, you know, that's these same kids. And that's why I asked them if, if how they were feeling about things. And so that's the story. So the story is these students working on Hyperloop, working to change the world um, in this age where hate crimes have spiked because of rhetoric during the campaign. And so that's the idea. And uh, and so I went to Olathe, Kansas, and I interviewed people in and around, uh, including the survivor uh, of that attack. And I went to Cincinnati and spent time with the students. And it was interesting because, you know, going to Olathe first and kind of snooping around four or five weeks after this attack, it's not the easiest job in the world. Um, and you kind of leave pretty sad. And then you get to the students in the University of Cincinnati and how much energy they have and optimism and how they believe in our country. And, and their belief in the American dream kind of made me realize, yeah, well, you know, our country is pretty great. You know, its promise is pretty great and we can do so much. And they were, you know, they were assisted by uh, conservative 
business owners in Cincinnati. Like they, they were, there were people that rallied around them that that definitely voted for Trump. And so you can see that actually who we are isn't kind of like what we're reading about all the time and seeing all the time. Uh, I mean, I think we're all of that, uh, but there's a, a core of us that that belief and our values that that these immigrant students, international students share, that's inspiring. So that's what I hope to get across. Yeah. And I think the mindset, I would imagine, of uh, a stu- an international student coming in, you know, feeling like they have something to prove in a lot, in a lot of ways, right? Well, yeah. Like feeling like, okay, I really need to um, create some kind of legacy here because you're coming from such a different background. I see that in, in surfing a lot. Right now, Brazilian kids are taking over the surfing world. Mm. Uh, and a lot of them are coming from very poor backgrounds. Mm. They don't have much to come back to. And you see that mindset um, play out and you see those types of characters rise to the top again and again because of that background. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really profile two students in particular. Um, Duvall uh, is the he. he he started the whole Hyperloop thing at University of Cincinnati, um, and he's kind of the Steve Jobs guy, and he's the dreamer, and he's the he's the head engineer and head project, you know, the chief of the project, and I think he's more focused on the technology and advancing it, and he's less focused on he doesn't he didn't seem to have a chip on his shoulder. Right. He was driven by the dream. Yeah, obviously, I'm generalizing. Yeah, yeah, no, but then Sid, um, Fatum, who is like the head of the business unit. And he talks about having a chip on your shoulder. And, you know, he not only was getting an engineering degree, he was getting a business degree and he was a TA and he had another job and he was sleeping in his office four days a week um, and sharing a, a, one, a two bedroom apartment with four other with three other guys um, like that. He only went back to every few days and, you know, sleeping four hours a week, showering in the gym on campus, because um, that's how he felt he had to, he had to do that to get ahead. He has to continue to prove himself. And he doesn't talk about this in any bitter way. He's one of the sweetest guys you ever meet. He reminds me, if you ever seen Rushmore, of Max Fisher, he's in every club, he knows everybody on campus, everybody knows him, he's friends with the president of the university, you know, that kind of thing. A high-functioning human. Yeah, 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 but um, but there is a chip-on-the-shoulder element to to why he does it, but he does, it doesn't come across in any sort of bitter way, right. but it does fuel him, I think. Walk me through the process of pitching one of these stories to Playboy. Yeah, I mean, um, any story, what I'll do usually is I'll get an idea, and then I'll do some... Uh, baseline background reporting just to get get make sure I see have if the a story hand. has legs. See if the story has legs. Make sure I have access. That kind of thing. So you know you don't want to pitch something and promise something to an editor and then turn out you can't deliver it. And yes. that, that has happened. You know it's going to happen every once in a while. Access can change. You know yeah. you couldn't even be promised something and then all of a sudden they turn it around and say no. Do you have an you exa- can be lied to by a source and then turn it around. Right. Do you yeah, have an no. example of that? Well, the best example is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had a story fall through with Fast Company recently where I have a contact, a Nigerian tech company that's a really cool startup, and um, he just misrepresented how much uh, play he was getting by an incubator here. And so it, originally it looked like he was getting funded by this incubator, and at the time it hadn't actually happened. And so it was just he jumped the gun with me, I think, and then I jumped the gun. And so then when it turned out it wasn't there, I had to go back to my editor and say, hey, sorry, I, I didn't have that story. You know, So that happens. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's a matter of trusting the source too much. And my, my style is to... 
I love hearing people's stories so much that I think if one of my weaknesses is that maybe I won't be as skeptical as I should be with a, with a given source. And that's something I have to fight against. But um, and it's becoming easier to be more skeptical right. <laughs> my, as I get older. The, but, mo- uh, <laughs> the, the more of those emails that you have to write to the editor, like, hey, man, sorry, like the bullshit meter just becomes that much more finely tuned yes, for future yes, stories. Yes, yes, yes. And you want to you want to double check that because you want to, you know, you know, but in the in the early days that's you know usually you're just trying to get a handle on the story so anyway that's a that's an example so in this case i'd gone to hyperloop the cop the competition i'd met these guys and then the olathe the olathe crime happened and so then to me the pieces were there so you had done all that before you even pitched the story to playboy i'd gone to i'd gone to the hyperloop finals at spacex i'd met uh the students we had some video with the students we had some photographs of the students because um, I we were videoing as I was talking to them on, on location there. And then the Olathe crime happened. And so then at that point, it became a story, right? So pretty much like within a week of the hate crime, uh, that's when I pitched my editors and they, they went for it. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't have established access in Olathe prior to pitching. So that's something I hadn't done yet. But it was a little bit too raw to start to probe and there was enough people on the ground there. So what I did then was I got in touch with uh, some of the reporters from Kansas City Star who did a great, great job in the in the hours and days following the crime, uh, reporting it, um, getting access to the right people, um, explaining what happened. Expl- and and so I got in touch with one of those reporters. And it was my first meeting when I arrived in Kansas City was to have, uh, have a beer with one of those reporters. Um, a lot of uh, people who listen are travelers, uh, content creators. Will you? This is very specific, but will you walk me through the aspects of an email that you will write to an editor to make sure that it's complete? So it's not just like a "Hey, I think I have this idea for a story." Are there various assets that you'll make sure that you have in place um, to to send off that pitch email? Hmm. You know. Uh... I kind of work in a more organic way, but I'll tell you there's a couple different ways I go about it. So one is if if I haven't worked with a publication in a while or if I have some ide- like several ideas that I thought that, that I think might work and I'm trying to get um, get their interest, I might do like three or four bullet ideas where it will be a couple paragraphs on here's the story, um, here's why it's timely, here's why it's interesting. And here's why I'm the guy to tell it. And here's why it's right for you. I mean, those are the kind of basics that you want to get across in any pitch email. Um, and sometimes I'll go a little bit further. If I've done more background on a story, I'll basically, I might even do, you know, 500, 800 words on the story itself with the characters and really develop who those characters are. So that so you that can kind of paint a picture for, paint, paint more of a for the media picture. outlet already. Yes. yes okay. Yes, so yes. they can kind of see it themselves. Yeah, yes. 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 Okay. And sometimes uh, editors really appreciate pitches like that um, but sometimes they appreciate you know four real basic ideas just to get get it get it across but even if I'm doing four basic ideas the odds are I've done some background on it you know I don't just come up with an idea and fire it off and say what do you think I usually will have some handle on 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 the story beyond just uh, a couple sentences gotcha yeah. Um, yeah, but the basics would be um, here's the story here's who's involved here's why it's timely, here's why I'm the guy to tell it, and here's why it's great for your magazine or, or publication. And for the Hyperloop story, was your uh, reasoning for here's why I'm the guy to tell it because I've already been to this competition? 
I had access. I had access to the UC team, the University of Cincinnati team. I'd already met them. I was connected to their professor. I already said I'd love to come and see what you guys are doing out there. They'd already invited me out there, so the access there was established. Right. Yeah. And then there are aspects of your life that you that you not only have access to, but a history in, like water stories. Yeah, that too. And that that so that would be different. You know, Playboy. It's a little bit different since I've I've uh, done you know quite a few stories for them. So I'm like established with them so I don't have to necessarily explain why I'm the guy to them as much um, but I still should explain what I have in the bag already for them but yeah so if I'm approaching a publication I either haven't written for or haven't written a water story for I might tell them you know this is why I'm the guy to write about uh, a, a diving story because you know I've written a book about it I'm, I've I've written several you know kind of I call them jokingly man v water stories <laughs> i'm like i'm the for a for i i've considered myself the man v water store guy for the like new york times sports page <laughs> nobody else is really doing the man v water yeah stories water always wins <laughs> i can tell like you as brand. a surfer water will always win yes water always wins but sometimes you, they can accomplish a goal in yes water. Yeah, 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 yes yeah, yeah 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 um i just a couple weeks ago took a re-up of the um breath hold survival course ah and one of my instructors was with, P, with PD, uh, PFI. Yes. Yeah. yeah Performance Free Diving yeah. International. And yeah. one of my instructors was uh, good friends with Nick, okay. the subject of uh, of your book, One Breath. Who was your instructor? Shell. Uh, no, it was. Um, gosh, I'm. Chris was one of them. You yeah. know, Chris. Yeah. Yep. And uh, there was another guy. I'm spacing on his name. Chris was my instructor as well. Yeah. 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 That guy's awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man. I mean. Talk about uh, altered states of consciousness and quickly going to depths that you never thought possible. Yeah. Goddamn. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, free diving is its own trip. Uh, you know, it, the, from an altered states perspective, I, I remember, I remember one time when I was when I was so. Obviously, you know, I wrote a book called One Breath. It's about um, it's about Nick Mavoli's life and death. I, I happened to be at uh, Dean's Blue Hole in the Bahamas when he died. I happened to be there. I was covering uh, Leah Barrett, the photographer, and I were covering the event for New York Times. And it was just going to be this kind of uh, one-off, here's this quirky sport, and here's what they're doing, and here's these athletes, and they were going to run it at some point midweek, um, and kind of in the dog days of, of the football season. College football was waiting for the Bulls, and NFL is waiting for the playoffs, and NBA is just getting started. And so... They were just going to run this at some point, and then Nick died, and it became big news for a couple of days because Nick was from Brooklyn, and and so. And were you the only reporter on site? And I was the only one there. Yeah, I mean, they they have their own. Deeper Blue had people there, but that that's kind of a a, a diving site. Yeah. And, yeah. So break it down for me the, these competitions. So the competition, so free diving is kind of this really growing recreational sport. It's 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 growing much faster than scuba diving. Every time, everywhere there's scuba diving centers now. There's going to be free diving centers. Even Patty, who's the number one scuba agency, is as has now has a free diving curriculum. That shows you how much it's growing. And so uh, there's the recreational aspect, which is, hey, you know, go down and, and swim with creatures without the bubbles. You'll get closer to animals. You'll, you'll be able to experience things differently. 
Um, it's quiet. Um, it's a different feeling entirely, and it's athletic. Whereas scuba, you know, you don't have to be an athlete to to be a scuba diver. You, you know, the whole idea of scuba is actually move as little as possible. So you're not, you know, even though you might be hungry and tired after a scuba dive, it's not burning many calories. Whereas free diving is really an athletic achievement. And so I think for those reasons, it's become this hugely growing recreational sport. And but it's also a competitive sport. In competitive free diving, there are six competitive disciplines. Uh, there and three of them are in a pool, and three of them are in depth. And in a pool, you have dynamic, which is you know swim as many uh, lengths in a pool as you can with a with a monofin. Usually, there is dynamic no fins, which is the same thing, doing a modified breaststroke, and uh, always underwater, of course. And then there is a static apnea, which is face down in the water and holding your breath as long as you can. And so that you know the, the record for that is you know, twelve minutes, right around there. So I mean that's pretty. <laughs> That's pretty hectic. And then depth, the depth um, disciplines are constant weight, which is with a monofin. The reason they call it constant weight is in, in, in competitive freediving is any, any weight you take with you down, you have to keep with you and bring it back up. You can't drop it. Um, back in the day, the kind of the people were taking sleds down, people uh, and then swimming up or taking sleds down and pulling a pin and having having an inflate, inflatable take you up. Is that not a discipline anymore? That was never a competitive discipline, but that was always who's the deepest man, deepest woman in the world. That seems like a silly discipline. To, it's just the, more stunt. Yeah, yeah, it's more stunt. You're you're holding on to this huge weight. Someone clicks a lever, and all this, then you're just equalizing. Boom, 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 yeah. as quickly as you can. It's a matter of equalizing to yeah. get down. Yeah. It just seems so uncomfortable. It's yeah. like it's like strapping yourself to a fucking rocket ship and being like, "I'm the highest person in the world." And yeah, I didn't die. Yeah, and that's the idea, right? So the deepest person in the world. But now, but sometime around the point where you know it just became clear that we'd gone as kind of as deep as possible without there being a serious risk of stroke or death. We'd had a, a number of top athletes actually did have strokes, uh, either. At, preparing for or or attempting world records in um you know in that kind of uh, uh discipline i don't know why i'm spacing on the um the proper name for it but on the, in the sled free diving um because of that the best athletes in the world william truebridge is one of the most outspoken is like you know i don't do that that's not what i do what i do is i, I you know, I'm swimming down, I'm dropping down, and I'm swimming back, and that's that's the true nature. That's that's how you tell who the best freediver in the world is. Not if you're holding on to a sled and happen to be able to equalize well, right. but can you swim back and can you do it under your own power? Uh, and so those three disciplines are constant weight. That's with the monofin. There's constant no fin. Same idea. Any weight you bring down, you have to swim back, and that's a modified breaststroke down and back and there's free immersion where you're pulling yourself down to depth and pulling yourself back along a line and I say swim down but really they're just swimming down to or pulling down to about 20-25 meters and then you know negative buoyancy takes hold and they do as little as possible and they just like just free fall all the way down and these guys are going you know over 100 meters deep you know the record for constant weights 129 meters now that's held by Alexei Molchanov a Russian athlete who's uh, one of the best in the world William Trubidge is, is one of the two best in the world those are the two best guys and William Trubridge has the other two records, and um, he's New Zealand uh, born, but but lives in the Bahamas, right by Dean's Blue Hole. It's his backyard. It's crazy what happens to your body down there too. Oh yeah, so you know, on the way down, you know, we're at we're at one atmosphere here on the surface, and at ten meters deep, you're at two atmospheres of pressure, and your lungs are half their normal size, and at, at twenty meters, they're a third of their normal size, and so on. Your lungs end up being you know the size of your fists, and um, blood ends up getting uh, sent from your extremities to your core 
to fill that vacuum of space so that your skeleton doesn't get crushed, right? These are, these are part of the mammalian dive reflex. This is something that happens to seals and porpoises as they descend to depth. It's the same idea. It's been measured. And so that blood shift happens in humans too. And as you keep going, um, the, the partial pressure of oxygen in your blood rises. So it's this kind of because of that pressure and because your the lung volume has shrunk, your brain thinks, hey, I have plenty of oxygen. So you stay conscious, but you, you can trip out like time seems to expand the deeper you go. The sea seems to squeeze in and hugs you and people, you know, divers report free deep free divers report, you know, kind of feeling like they're just this speck of consciousness in this abyss. And it's like this meditative thing. And partly because your your heartbeat, you know, Brad bradycardia takes hold so your heartbeat goes to half your resting heartbeat is that what it's called bradycardia yeah and so you're so these when, are, when, when you dive down it goes to half its heart rate or just when your face touches water no as you dive down as it the pressure takes hold it slows and slows and and remember these are like top shelf athletes you know the 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 top free divers to me are equivalent to Olympic swimmers in, in terms of fitness. A lot of them are. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, for them, a resting heart rate would be around 60 beats per minute. So we're talking about, you know, 30 beats per minute underwater. So it's a meditative experience. And then you get down, they grab a tag from the, from the plate and they have to swim back up against that negative buoyancy, which is like swimming through a stiff current. And so that all that energy and they've been holding their breath for so long and then their lungs start to expand and their brain is saying, oh, wait, we're low on oxygen, we're low on oxygen. And so they're getting a little more lightheaded and they get to the surface and they break through and they take their deep breath and they have that endorphin rush and they have that exhilaration coupled with that you know, meditative experience. And it's this high that you can't get anywhere else. And um, that's what I think they're drawn to. Do you know if the same physiological changes happen in other primates? Well, the mammalian dive reflex is something that's been proven in marine mammals. I don't know if it would happen in, in primates on the way down, but I would imagine well, it I, would. Well, I know that yeah. we have a lot of anatomical characteristics that other primates do not have that allow us to be more attuned to aquatic okay. uh, atmospheres. Yeah. Like, um, you know, f for example, the uh, a baby infant uh, human is the only uh, primate that will naturally hold its breath uh, when exposed to water. Um, the, the you know we have this layer of fat, the subcutaneous fat, um, that allows us to be more buoyant. Um, and it's it's something that I've been interested in learning more about. Yeah. And um, Chris Ryan. Um, was telling me about the aqua uh, the aquatic ape theory. Okay. What, do you know much about this? I've heard of it. It's something it's that like I, an evolutionary theory. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, an, yeah. it's an evolutionary theory yeah, that some yeah. apes were driven yep. from the trees to live a more aquatic yes, life, and yes. and over generations and generations, there are char uh, characteristics that s still to this day um, allow us to be more attuned to aquatic. Well, you know what that means? That means that you and I are just less evolved humans, probably. Right. Exactly. <laughs> all water people out there. You're less evolved, but don't worry. So are we. <laughs> so you were at this competition. Yeah. Expected it to be a one-off story. Yes. And had you been into free diving before then, or was this no? Kind of your, this was the beginning of this, this is, kind well of so, trail so, that you right. found yourself on. So what happened was I um, I was already an open water swimmer, and I'm, I was already a tech technical scuba diver and a scuba diver. So I was a 
I'd, I'd gone to 50 plus meters on twin tanks doing technical scuba diving, you know, penetrating wrecks and that kind of thing. And, but I was mostly an open water swimmer and that had started in 2012 when I'd had a bad back injury and I couldn't run anymore. And so I got in the water and then I, that quickly, I went from the pool to the ocean real quick, you know, right, not too far from where we are now because, um, it's just more beautiful and just more, you know, inspiring. And so I got into open water swimming with some friends and, uh, that became pretty quickly the best thing in my life. I was going through all sorts of issues in 2012, which you can talk about later with the, with the new book. But, um, but so, so the best thing in my life was open water swimming and in 2012, the end of that year, I ended up in Kauai doing a Lonely Planet travel guide for Kauai. And while I was there, you know, something you've reported on in the past that I got kind of got clued into the gen- genetically modified corn um, crops and 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 uh, the companies that were over there growing it on the old sugarcane plantations. And I saw, I heard about a small community in the west side of Kauai called Lower Waimea, which was getting inundated by um, toxic dust from uh, the DuPont Pioneer Fields up above their uh, community. Yeah, I've been been to those fields. Exactly. And so there was this, uh, you know, there was a concern about cancer cluster and there was all sorts of property damage. And I thought, you know, my life was kind of coming apart here. I was in the midst of a divorce and I just thought, I mean, we actually broke up while I was in Kauai. And I thought, you know what, what am I doing in LA? I don't make money here. I I make money when I'm on the road. So I'm just going to, you know, decamp to Kauai where the water's warm. And I've had found some open water swims I loved there. And I'm going to go check out the story. And so I went out there and I started to cover that story. And the, the, the photographer that came out to shoot it was a friend of mine, Leah Barrett, who I think is one of the best underwater photographers in the world. You should check out her stuff. And um, she came to shoot it. And she had just come from a freediving competition in Roatan, the Caribbean Cup, in which Nick had just gotten his 100 meters. It was the, the deepest any American freediver had ever been. And he'd gotten that record. First to 100 meters was a big deal for the United States. And he was a young guy, too, who had kind of made this rapid ascension into the sport yeah he was 32 at that time he started he started late he, he was one of those interesting characters who the water was always his place he was always a great you know he, by the time he was 10 years old he was holding his breath for almost three minutes you know out diving his uncle like diving for for lobster and he was just always and he was a bmx guy he was just he was one of those people that it was good at everything he picked yeah. up you know and a natural athlete really really uh high pain tolerance kind of stuff you know stuff that you hear about with natural athletes the high high pain tolerance and ability to pick things up very quickly and just excelled and he was especially great underwater and uh so when he finally discovered this sport you know he went from being completely unknown to uh breaking an american record in his first competition um, and so he, he, he just went really quickly up, up the scale and kind of went on, got onto everybody's radar internationally right away. Uh, anyway, she was telling me about him and she was telling me about the sport in general. And she said, you know, we should go cover this. We should go to the vertical blue in the, in, in November. And so, you know, at her behest, we kind of started looking around for an outlet. We found one and we, and we were both there. And this is while you, so while you were in, uh, Kauai, yeah. um, you were doing open water swims yourself, yep. getting more interested in aquatic sports. Yeah. And, and it was, well, through, I was already through her that you learned about this story. Well, I'd already knew about competitive freediving because actually one of the guys who taught me how to technical dive is, is, 
uh, England's greatest freediver named Michael Board. He actually lives in Indonesia where I met him. He lives in Gili Chuangan. And so he was a friend of mine. I knew him already. And I knew he was one of the better guys in the sport. So I knew of the sport. I just didn't um, I didn't have an handle on angles to, to really sell the story. And so she kind of clued me in, hey, we should be covering this. This is really cool. Let's go to Vertical Blue and cover it. Nobody, people haven't been there to cover that specific event. You know, the, sp- the story had been covered in different publications, the sport itself, like World Championships, I think outside had done something on worlds the year before but nobody had ever covered vertical blue at dean's blue hole in the bahamas and so that we were the first to go there for a mainstream publication to do that and yeah the idea was just to cut a one-off on this cool sport story in this great location i mean the island is is magical it's very it's an amazing place and we got there and it's really rustic and out there uh, but so close to the united states you know people don't realize how unbelievable the bahamas are it's just such a beautiful place to explore and long island is one of those great islands how would you describe it i've never been to the bahamas well there's nassau which is an interesting city in itself but then there's these family islands and they're just really rustic and and uh, rugged with with limestone formations and um you know deep deep holes deep blue water holes and freshwater holes like cenotes in, in yucatan what causes those you know, I don't know exactly what causes them, but they're limestone. So it's like there's basically limestone ca- caverns that are vertical that just. And the competitions take place with divers diving into these so holes. So Dean's Blue Hole is the deepest, uh, blue, d- deepest, I think it's the deepest in the world in terms of uh, these underwater caverns. And this one is vertical. And so it's literally steps from the sand. What makes it unique is a lot of blue holes are out in the middle of the ocean. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the ocean floor opens up and there's this little self-contained hole. Um, but it, you still have to take a boat out there. But Dean's Blue Hole, you literally walk out in three steps. You're in, you know, 202 meter deep water. And then to your right, you see these old turquoise shallows that are hitting, lapping up against a white sand You don't beach. want to be a random tourist who falls into that thing. No, but, you know, there have been random tourists and people from Nassau who've died there. So there's been deaths uh and they were swimmers who from NASA, Nassau. Oh, Nassau. Yeah, the, the capital, <laughs> the big, capital city of the Bahamas. Big, but people who aren't big NASA aren't sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people who aren't who aren't familiar with it. And Na- NASA, NASA guys being like, "Screw going up, I'm going down." <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I'm like, I'm I'm totally butchering the way to describe these blue holes. It's been a while since I I researched and wrote the book, but. But basically, there's 50, you know, 50 foot bluffs, limestone bluffs, kind of sheltering one side of Dean's Blue Hole, and the other side is these turquoise shallows. And here's this kind of deep water penetrating um, space with sand falls that look like photo negative of waterfalls, with sand just falling and falling and falling. And the reason the whole hole hasn't been filled up with sand is that there must be, um, you know, there's been a technical diver down all the way to the, the bottom, and there's little outflows at the bottom like Swiss cheese you know this this limestone's like Swiss cheese and just kind of carries that sand out um, but they, they drop a line in the middle of the blue hole and they just dive down and it's perfect because there's no current visibility is often good it can be wonky but it's there's no current and you can easily access for a competition perspective it's great the free divers love it because of the no current the conditions are always good and predictable did they so so when Nick passed away did they um like what happened in the days following? Did they continue the competition or like no, what? no? So once Nick died, the competition was was put on hold and then eventually canceled. And what was the autopsy for for how he passed away? So there was the immediate autopsy, which um, 
kind of made it seem like he drowned. Uh, we didn't really know how he died. And so there was a secondary autopsy that was undertaken at the behest of another competitive freediver named Carrie Hollowell, who's friends with Nick. She's a, an American freediver, a competitive freediver, and also an ER doc. And so she um, took it upon herself to get a secondary autopsy done, got in the, in, like in the immediate hours after Nick's death actually got the family to sign over his organs and, and his uh, so that he, they can be studied. Yeah, and use it for this emerging sport. Yes, to find out what happened. And, and so without going into great detail, I mean, that's all in the book. That's part of the story yeah. is how he died. But um, there was a, she connected with um, an older medical examiner who that, you know, people think coroners do it, but coroners are kind of a political position. It's medical examiners that do the autopsy. And this uh, Dr. Gilliland, who is this I mean, she's like Linda Hunt as a as a you know as a, a medical examiner. She's really cool, short, you know, no nonsense. Who is this older woman? I don't know Linda MG, Hunt. Linda Hunt is an actress, but like she's just kind of like I think she was a seventy five year old kind of won't ever retire cantankerous sure. older woman sure. who uh, takes takes no BS and is looking into this. Uh, and so she was just a great, great person to talk to, yeah. great character. And she looked into it. But what Carrie and Dr. Gilliland found was that Nick had a succession of lung injuries that caused um, permanent injuries in his lungs. And so that he had just had uh, and it looked like it, she was also able to say, hey, this looks because of the repair cells that come anytime a wound happens. So what happens with free divers, one of the things they have to guard against is lung squeezes. And so if you're not completely relaxed and the barometric pressure hits you and you do any sort of movements out of the ordinary, you could end up having micro tears in your lungs. Even looking up at yeah. that depth. Yeah. Something like that. Even lo looking up at that depth will cause tears in your larynx. But um, Nick did some unorthodox movements while he was down at depth, which could cause other lung tears. And he also had um, he also had a lung squeeze previous days before in his previous dive. And so he'd had he already had some of his air sacs they weren't they weren't able to function properly but you know our, our lungs are basically like bunches of grapes you know and each little air sac can exchange uh, carbon dioxide for oxygen in the bloodstream um, on their own so if you have one or two air sacs that are bruised it doesn't mean you can't breathe so you wouldn't necessarily know that you're injured in any sort of profound way immediately after the dive you'll spit up some blood but then you'll that won't happen anymore and you'll feel like okay i'm okay you won't even feel it it won't hurt um, but so he'd had a succession of lung injuries that had caused, um, permanent scar tissue in his lungs. And then he, uh, had an injury two days before and then he went back in and had an injury again. And so we think, you know, it be became clear that that had something to do with the fact that he, the reason he, he couldn't exchange carbon dioxide for oxygen at the surface. Also, we found, you know, we had the video of the recovery effort and it, it, and it had some issues. So there was like any tragedy, eight or nine things that could have gone differently. And had any one of those things gone differently, uh, he'd probably be alive today. But unfortunately, you know, once you get to the fifth thing, it becomes harder to get off track. Right. You, know, you got to get out. You got to, you know. Eight, eight or nine things could have caused it, but once you get to like the fifth thing, the tipping point has been reached, and it's really hard to get off the track. Yeah, yeah. I did, I did a story on uh, the BP oil spill yeah. out in Louisiana, and I yeah. was asking people about like, so what caused it? Like, there were like eighteen 
successive incidents bad choices uh, bad choices yeah. yeah that that led to that it's yeah. usually it's it's rarely just one thing right and that's and that's you know obviously uh Malcolm Gladwell kind of painted that picture you know when he was talking about plane crashes i think and i think it is in the tipping point that there is like all tragedies including plane crashes or anything that has happened you could even point it into your own life any mistakes made usually it's not just one decision that was wrong right usually it's a multiple mistake yeah and that's why uh they developed the um it's it's called like the no talking zone where pilots are not allowed to talk to each other during takeoff and landing because so many of the crashes would happen during the takeoff and landing yeah. is is that right yeah, yeah, i remember yeah. listening to or maybe in his book he was talking about that yeah there was a few things i think uh, another thing was just making sure that the pilots spoke that were fluent in english because often like some you know and then and then i think he was talking about korean air was the was the example and korean air has got a great record now but at the time they were having a lot of crashes and one of the things was culturally you weren't supposed to question an elder who's also your superior and so in there was one uh plane crash he was looking at in that chapter in which case like both the co-pilots or the co-pilot knew that the captain was making bad choices but didn't say anything oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's or like who had to have known well, like it was obvious it's like that in a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of industries medical industry is one that that had to shift and i think gladwell used an example of this in his book uh around nurses questioning um surgeons going into operation yes where culturally it wasn't uh it, it wasn't kosher to, to question the, the surgeon like hey are you sure that we're supposed to be operating on the left ear or the right ear and there were a few instances where they fucked up majorly yeah. and they had to do this big overhaul of the culture same with um bp oil spill right very much like right. people wanting to cover their friends you know and not you know you can kind of just sweep a few things under the rug uh and as a result these disasters ensue yeah I mean, you know, that's that's exactly right. So it's it's often comes down to culture in that perspe- in that respect. Yeah, yeah. And in in free diving, getting bring, bringing it back around, the culture was one of denial of lung squeezes. People knew it. Some people took it seriously, and just, but they didn't take it seriously in terms of trying to make any regulations in the sport. They took it seriously for themselves. I, I take lung squeezes seriously, so if I spit blood, I'm going to stay out of the water for a month. But back in the early days. You know, when uh, the original athletes who were starting to pioneer free diving, that's back when hey, taking the sled down made sense because they were just starting to explore depths. You know, when free diving first started, people thought you're, you're, you couldn't even be underwater at 50 meters, that you would die, that it was actually you were trying to, <laughs> that was suicidal. They didn't know you could go deeper. So in those days, if they came up and spat blood, they'd be out of the water for a month, no questions asked. And they were really careful about it. But at some point, Free divers started telling themselves, you know, this is safer than people think. Anyone who thinks that we're crazy is crazy. And that's why they kind of didn't trust reporters coming in from the outside because often reporters and doctors who didn't understand the sport would make mistakes and d- their perception was off. And I think that created this culture, of, this insular culture that was kind of in denial of the real dangers that they were kind of undertaking. And um, and that's why there was some resistance to even myself kind of looking into this story, being there in Vertical Blue and then later pursuing the story. Um, there was some resistance and that was about um, there was this this culture that had to change and Carrie, this free diver, she's been trying to pioneer that change. And some of the people that were there that day, Ren Chapman and Ashley Chapman, 
who are great free divers, American free divers and safety divers, they've been trying to pursue change in the sport. And that that's important. And, you know, Will Truebridge at Vertical Blue made some changes for the next year, um, you know, trying to make sure that you can monitor for lung squeezes, trying to figure out a way to monitor for lung squeezes so that, that athletes that are not meant to be diving should be out of the water and can be, you know, sidelined by the judges. Right. Um, putting your uh, reporter hat on after... Uh, an instance like that where you're there you you realize that this is a much bigger story than you initially thought um but you want to be respectful of obviously a big um a big tragedy that just happened how will you go about trying to get the assets that you need for this story in the midst of a tragedy tragedy like that well it's tough you know because when we first were invited there um it wasn't like we got the red carpet treatment. You know, some people were really suspicious uh, because we were outsiders coming in and what are they going to write about in, about our sport? Usually people come in and they make a big circus out of it saying, look at these crazy people. They're not serious athletes. They're just, you know, you know yahoos, they're, they're yahoos. daredevils. Yeah. So they'd been misrepresented. I mean, I'm not going to deny that. Yeah. They, they'd been misrepresented and people were sensitive because this is their livelihood and it's their sport and they care a lot about it. And it's like a... You know, it's like a tribe in and of itself. And so... Uh, like, this is our little thing. Right. We want to keep it... But, you know, you get there and you thing. hang out with people and you eat with people and you, yeah. you know, and luckily Michael Board was there and Michael Board was an old friend. And so I already had that connection. And so having Michael there was key. Um, Leah had made inroads with people. She'd been there for a bit. And so we were kind of welcomed in by some of the safety divers that were there. So we had the safety divers that we were in with. We had the... We had... Mike, I was in with him and, and some of his friends. And then when the tragedy happened, um, you know, the wagons were circled to some degree, but I still had those access points. So I was able to get information. I mean, the, in the wake of it when, it, when it really happens right then and there, um, you know, we just followed Nick was taken to a clinic. We, we, you went, followed Nick. We followed the, yeah. I mean, everyone kind of went to the clinic. Everyone who was there went up to the clinic and just waited. Um, I talked to the local police officer. I talked to everybody I could that was there. And then um, Ren Chapman, who was the head of the safety team that day or that, that competition, uh, you know, I'd, I'd already become friendly with him over the course of that week. So he, he came and spoke with me when, he, when his duties were done there. And we uh, talked a little bit about it. And then uh, Mike came and spoke with me. And I just had enough already of just it, it was kind of the first day is the scene you know, you're writing about what happened. So, you know, I already had that and I just had, I got what I needed. And then the second day was a little bit more explanatory piece that I collaborated with other writers for the New York times. And so I just kind of covered the memorial service and got what I needed there that day. Did you have a recorder with you? Yeah. You know, I use a combination. Sometimes I'll just type notes into my phone. Sometimes I'll have my computer there that day when they came to talk with me they came to uh, the little apartment that we were rented and uh, and I just was on the computer and I was just typing notes. But I often will uh, use a voice recorder, an HD voice recorder on my phone to... Uh, to And then record. go back to make sure and that then I'll you transcribe didn't, it, you didn't yeah. misquote yeah, them yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll okay. transcribe it. But you know, that that's time consuming. So I don't always use that. It's often better to just to kind of get notes right away. And then, you know, you get good at, at getting what you need and asking kind of fluff questions just so you can get the real the real what do you mean well, by that yeah. what do you mean by that well like if i'm interviewing you for instance and you say something i really like but obviously the converse it's a conversation so it doesn't just end there 
But if you if you say something I really like, I'll, I'll I'll be typing that out, and then I'll ask you some question I don't really care about, or I'll just an elaboration just to get you to talk about something while I can finish that thought. Right, right, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, well, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? Well, no, not really that, but you know, no, we'll, yeah. it'll still be related to it. But yeah, but in a way, you ask something just so you can get the first quote down because if the first quote's gold, you don't want to miss it. And if you're not tape recording, you have to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, how'd you get into reporting? Um, I got into it, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, yeah, I got into it when I was, I was out of college. I started working in environmental nonprofits and I ran campaign offices for the Sierra club. And then I went traveling and I came back from a backpacking trip through central and South America and got a job at tree people. And I was planting trees with kids at schools. And at some point, I kind of started thinking about what do I really want to do for a living? And uh, I went to East Africa to climb Kilimanjaro. I took a month off from work. And while I was out there, I was uh, I, I had grabbed an, uh, an issue of Islands Magazine. And on the cover, was a Zan- it was a Zanzibar cover story. And I went to Zanzibar, and I'm reading this great story in Zanzibar, in its element. I'm thinking to myself, why does that? asshole get to do this for a living (laughs) i want to be that asshole so i just at that point you know i coming out of college i used to love to just get high and listen to jazz and write like stream of consciousness you know beatnik poetry i would i would fill journals with that stuff and uh and so i knew i could turn a phrase like i really liked doing it it felt good I, i liked what came out of it i never really shared much of it uh but um i liked i liked the process and i thought you know, I thought maybe I could write stories. You know, I, I never really tried. And so after I came back from that trip, I walked Wilshire and Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards from beginning to end. And I wrote a story about it. And that ended up getting me my first assignment to walk streets in East L.A. and do like a walking tour of East L.A. Who did you write that first assignment for? It's called The Big Issue, which is kind of a big they have the they have the magazine in the U.K. and they have it in Australia. But it kind of didn't last here. And if I didn't show up the day they were packing the offices, I never would have gotten paid. <laughs> that story (laughs) like i it was i think they lasted two three months here um but they did i did get paid eventually (laughs) make sure to to invoice them right away yeah and it reminds me of like hunter s thompson like used to threaten to send dead cats to his editors if he didn't get paid so like it's been happening a long time i think (laughs) i think i'm still waiting for a check right now from uh an outlet that will remain nameless I, i love the uh pragmatic advice dead cats Dead cats. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Good but Hunter S. Thompson could do that. that. I'm write that one down. Well, Hunter S. Thompson could do that and still get work from that same outlet because he was a genius. But you know, I'm not quite. I'm not quite in dead cat mailing yeah. uh, territory. Just dead mouses at this point. <laughs> <laughs> the best I could do is like a, like gummy bears. I yeah, think that would help. Um, <laughs> so, so you started writing stories about streets. So yeah, I just I you know that was my first kind of travel story, and then so then then I was really into yoga at the time and. Um, I started to write, and I still am, but I mean, at that point it was kind of like this growing world and I started to write about, I, I pitched a story on sound healing to, uh, whole lifetimes, which was an area magazine at that time. And then, <clears throat> you know, I just would piece stories, try to find homes for stories. I, I ended up, um, an editor or someone who had yoga conferences for her business kind of approached me and said, Hey, I want to start uh, something called LA yoga. Will you uh, come help start it. So I started LA yoga with her, which is still in print now. And it was this kind of yoga publication. And I did everything from music reviews to, to feature stories for them and like helped staff the whole thing and helped distribute the magazine. I did everything. So you got to wear a lot of hats, wore a lot of hats, it cool. was a place to put 
you know, to get stories in ink. And so that, you know, a story I read, I wrote for that publication got recognized by an editor for Spa magazine who hired me to write a story. And then Spa was connected to Islands magazine. It was the same media group. And so pretty soon I was able to pitch uh, travel stories to Islands. And so eventually, within a few years, I was able to write some uh, travel-related content. Or they would send you on a trip. We didn't call it content back then. I'm kicking myself for calling it content. Yeah, we didn't call it content. Back then it was called stories. Now it's called content. So would you call yourself a content creator? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) yes. Isn't it funny how that one just came about? Yes. If anyone wants to hire me, I am a content creator. <laughs> no, I'm a storyteller. So, so you do like Instagram <laughs> stories. Like, no. I feel like if you're a content creator, it's it, you, just, you say I get paid to do Instagram. That's well, you know, it's funny. Everything's content now, right? So like, people could look at a bookshelf and say, hey, "Look at all that content." I mean, I'm sure young people think that way, and so it is funny that I even said that. You know, a content a place to put content. It's not how we thought then. It's not really how I run my operation now, um, but it is. It has become this thing, right? Content is king. And so that's not necessarily bad for us, but it is it is changing the shape of the distribution avenues. How so? Well, I mean, now, because um, advertising dollars are getting pulled from uh, kind of print publications and going online or going to Google or going to Facebook, um, it's impacting those industries. And so print, you know, you could used, used to be able to find lots of publications that would pay a buck to two bucks a word or even more than $2 a word for stories. And web stories, you can make, you know, a small fraction of that often. Now, some people, there are some outlets out there that pay the same for online as they do for print. And those are great. But there's very few of those. Most, okay. most of them, will you can make, you know, you can write a story for us for print and you can make five to ten grand or you can write a story for us online and make three to five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, it's and then that, that, that big a difference. Wow, yeah, and it's shifting more towards online now. It's shifting more that way. Yeah. Okay, yeah, um, and what's happening to writers as a result? Like, where would you say most most serious writers are going? Well, I mean, I think podcasting. A lot, a lot of <laughs> authors are going to podcasts yeah. as a as a way of doing things. I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's still you know there's still a place for great writing. Um, you know, luckily there's other places that are popping up. Long reads. I'm about to do something for Long Reads What's for that? the first time. Long Reads is a website. They have and they have an app and they have great reporting. You know, they've got they're funded and they have great reportage and they're doing long form storytelling and they're they're um, and they're paying a competitive rate for it and they're investing in writers to do great work. And um, you know, let's hope that that is a model that can sustain itself. And is that through uh, advertising, native advertising model? How are, you know, they, how are I, they funded? God, it's my first thing with them, so I'm not. I'm, I wouldn't. Yeah. I shouldn't really talk comment on that because I don't really know. But um, I think they have members, and then I think there's advertising aspect. Okay. Yeah, but I'd have to check. And you're also doing uh, Lonely Planet. Yeah, I've done well. lots of Lonely Planet guides. I've done like 30 plus Lonely Planet guides. Holy years. shit! Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Look at you. You really became that asshole. <laughs> I did. I uh, I am that asshole. And just like like you'd hope, you know, yeah, you you start to take it for granted like any asshole. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's always the case, yeah, yeah, right? That's the case. That's the case, right. No, it's it's uh it's Lonely Planet stuff has been awesome. You know, that that uh that's been a you know, great work and it gets you to cool places and you get way out there and it gets you into a a travel mind you know like as you know as a traveler where i think one of the great things about traveling especially traveling by yourself is getting 
you get so far out from your normal world that you can kind of feel connected to everything all at the same time and every pe- every person all at the same time. Something about being completely out in a place all by yourself that can make you feel so connected to everything and everyone all at once. Yeah. Um, and those are the kinds of kind of, I guess, pursuing those types of experiences is something I've I've done over the course of my adult life. Yeah. Well, it seems like you're you're fascinated by uh, different perspectives as a as a writer, as a traveler. I glean that you enjoy being that fly on the wall in situations that you have no business being in. Yes. Yeah. That's always interesting. I think it's one of the most like at its core. That's what traveling can offer is this perspective um, you know, and, and acknowledgement of the multiplicity of perspectives in the world and, and um, the chance to be in a room and say like, wow, this is what this woman's life is like, or this is what this kid's life is like. And that, that offers wisdom in a certain way. I mean, I was talking before the podcast about my interest in uh, the medical applications of psychedelics. And I think that on the, 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 the landscape in relationship to the landscape of traveling, psychedelics offer this um, this opportunity to explore the multiplicity of the mindscape, right? And it shatters certainty. Yeah. This is the way things are. Yes. In a way that um, can be a, a, a very cool human experience. Well, yeah. I mean, you're talking about altered states of consciousness and traveling is its, it's, its own altered state of consciousness. Uh, you know, you're out of the norm. You're the fish out of water. Everything's different. Nothing's the same. The food, the air, the, the the people, the language, everything's different. And so that challenges you on levels you can't even anticipate. So how do you write a Lonely Planet guide and not be cliche? Uh, you know, that's good. <laughs> how to not be cliche. That's my next book. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean you can't write about like the forgotten town and the clippity clop of horses. I mean, you know, I'd horses. like to say I've never been cliche, but I'm probably, you could probably find some evidence, some sins in my past. Um, um, I think the goal always is to try to be authentic, right? In anything you're trying to do, whether you're the fly on the wall telling stories, whether you're trying to find the, the cool restaurant nobody's found, or you're trying to find a beach or, um, you know, or, a, you know, a dive spot nobody has seen yet and, and try to figure out um, what to report and what to keep secret. Uh, but I usually report almost everything. The only time I'll keep something secret is if I see it like I've, I've come across a shark nursery or a whale shark spot that I will never report because I think, you know, I, I hate the fact that whale sharks are kind of these sought out things and helicopters out there spotting them and like they can't go anywhere without having dive boats surrounding them. So I will never report if there's an underreported like whale spot, whale shark spot. I'll never report that. If it's a, if it's a habitat oriented thing, I'll keep those secret. Yeah. But if I find the right beach and I find the right, you know, r- restaurant, I will report those for, because that's what I'm paid to do when I'm out there. And so I think if you take a, an authentic view, if you get the ear of people who live there, if you're um, coming from that perspective, I don't think it's cliche. I don't think you'll ever really be cliche. You might screw up in terms of like saying something, <laughs> writing something that sounds a little cliche, but I think the heart of the material will be authentic. What a, uh, are th- what questions will you ask people? 
Oh, it depends. You know, sometimes some of the work is self-explanatory. So if you're, some of it's like where to stay and where to eat. And some of that's just literally door-to-door observations. You'll, you'll walk the streets, you'll drive the, the area, you'll find the trails, you'll find all that stuff. Is that but, one of the know, things that you'll do? You'll just walk down the streets and take yeah, notes as you'll yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like if I'm doing, whether I'm doing LA or I'm doing, you know, uh, a Gili Island in Indonesia or I'm, you know, in Thailand, you'll just walk streets especially if it's a tourist area and you'll poke your head into every restaurant, every shop, every hotel, and you'll look at the rooms and you'll figure out what the best things are. But I'd say, I'd segue the streets and smoke your ass. (laughs) (laughs) Get the story done in half the time. Good idea. (laughs) You might hoverboard. You'd pack your, you're talking about authenticity though. You might not get led into those doorways. If you're the the guy in the segue, that segue would be out. (laughs) Hello. We have so much in common. (laughs) That segue segue would be stolen. (laughs) It'd be gone, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Segwaying. I'll be, I have an idea for a book. Segwaying through Mongolia. Yes. Well, you know, the auto skateboard, you know, unfortunately, the doors are pretty close together. So on foot's often the best way. Hyperlooping. 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 Hyperloop I saw the whole country in 30 minutes. Oh, that would have been nice. Yeah. That would have been nice. We covered 5,000 kilometers in, in Mongolia, man. That was saved, not easy. would have saved yourself some blisters. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, then, but then the, uh, so that's part of it. But when you're talking about like the best trails, to explore the best beaches, the best dive spots. That stuff's usually kind of protected, so you have to find the right person to talk to. So, wh- so why you? Like, if you're if you're uh, pitching an outlet, or you're you're trying to um, tell an outlet that you are the guy to go to Mongolia to do this story, what sets you apart from from someone else? Like, what do you do differently while you're on the trip? Well, I think I have a proven track record of being able to get to the heart of a destination now because I've been doing it for, you know, I've been doing Lonely Planet Guides for 10 years now and I've I've proven it over and over again, being able to go to a place either I have been or I haven't been either way and get to the heart of what makes that destination great and what are the places to see and what are the things to do. But Indonesia was my first Lonely Planet assignment and the reason I was chosen for Indonesia was I, you know, after the Bali bombing, I went, that's when I went to Bali for the first time. So I went there when Indonesia was still on the terrorist watch lists for the United States. It was still, you know, there were hotels blowing up in Jakarta still. It, you know, the economy hadn't picked up like it has in recent years, although there's issues there now again in terms of, uh, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, authoritarian kind of streams rearing their head in Indonesian national government right now but at the but you know it's obviously in a much sa- it's much safer and and a much more stable destination than it had been and so i think i was there at a time where f- there just weren't as many journalists working in indonesia so it was, i was an easy choice and lonely planet was work- looking to get more american writers in, on the roster and so i was a good choice to go there that was back that was a little bit a little bit ago yeah. Good for you. <laughs> you really became that asshole. I really did. I really did. I really did. It doesn't but, seem, you know, it, go for it. Yeah, I mean, it, no. It does. And it just doesn't seem like you're slowing down either. You just got back from Mongolia. I did. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I think at a time, what what really turned me on was to get to as many cool places and and absorb them as possible. It was really about traveling, and then sometime right around when. Nick died and I was on location there and you know I'd been I'd been a professional writer for over 10 years by then I started 
doing this in 2000, you know, 2001. And, um, it had been over 10 years I've been doing it, but I still kind of wondered if I had what it took, you know, that's just kind of, I think a lot of writers are like that. We're just like always questioning yourself. I mean, even you could read about John Steinbeck when he was writing grapes of wrath. He was like, he was considering himself an imposter. Like people are going to find me out. You know, the imposter syndrome is something a lot of creative people deal with. It seems like everyone does. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure. And we all do, you know, to some degree. Um, but you'd think it would wear off after a while. Right. Like, the, the extremely neurotic people just keep, keep carrying it with them. I think I might have a little bit in a suitcase in the back. Right. It's either, it's either I'm an imposter or I'm misunderstood. Yeah. And, and probably both. Right. And so, you know, after, but after tackling that breaking story, I kind of realized I was pretty good. And so I just thought at that point I started pursuing storytelling as really that that's my, that's, that's what I want to prioritize. And so, yeah, Mongolia was awesome. I loved it. And I'm going to do some more Lonely Planet stuff going, going forward. But to me, the, the key is finding great stories to tell. And I'd, I'll, I'd rather go, you know, to Riverside, California for a great story than I will to some exotic destination now. That's where I'm at now. Right. Yeah. Um, tell me about your upcoming book. We haven't really talked about yeah, that at all. Yeah, so Indolirium uh, is coming out August 15th. And Indolirium is about one particular research trip in 2012. And I had done, at that point, from 2007 to 2000. 13 say I was doing three lonely planet gigs a year and so I was and and from 2000 2007 to 2015 I was eight months a year on the road so that kind of you get into this mode where you, all sorts of things start to happen you're never really in your circadian rhythms are always off and so I was having you know I was newly married I was I but I had to take this job and, and I, my back was fucked up I had to take this job and go overseas for 90 days because I you know I, it was a good job in Indo I was going through the southeast southeastern islands of Indonesia and Maluku in, in the northeast so it was all these islands I was doing two big chapters for the Lonely Planet book and I'd been doing so many of them and I'd done Indonesia so many times I thought how can I keep it fresh and I thought that I would just you know I would do some stream of consciousness writing kind of get back to my roots of what really inspired me to become a writer back in college yeah and I would I would do that and so every morning and I would write before I started and uh, sometimes I'd write while I was on the road and it would just keep me I figured it was it was not just something for me to do but it would also be a tool to tune me back into a place I'd I'd ground I'd covered many times stream of consciousness stream of consciousness writing that you're talking about yeah but just I, like just like I'd, I'd write I would I would write I would write poetry and prose and that's what I was doing I was just going to write creatively about the destination not for Lonely Planet but for myself and just hold on to it and as a tool to stay aware because sometimes you can sleepwalk you know if things become too familiar you can sleepwalk and you can sleepwalk and when Lonely planet writing becomes too familiar and, and investigations into areas you've been m multiple times become too familiar. You're not going to do your job well. And so for me, it was a tool to stay awake and stay aware in territory I've been many times so that I can deliver what I'm supposed to deliver to the readers. And that was the idea. And so, but then it ended up being the most harrowing research trip of my life. You know, and I'd been to, I'd covered stories in Angola. I'd covered stories in Myanmar and the rebel ter held territories of Myanmar. I'd walked through minefields. I'd done all sorts of different things. This was the most harrowing research trip of my life. I was in a horse cart crash, a car crash. At one point I was stranded by 50 villagers with spears who wanted to kill me. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, there was, I was in, I, I was on like rickety ferries and fucking monsoon seas. I had the worst bout of, of insomnia I've ever had in my life. I had 
ear problems. Did I, that have anything to do with being surrounded by a, a group full of angry villagers with spears? I mean, it's all independent. <laughs> you know, this is all shit was happening one after another, after another, after another. And then at the end, uh, you know, the, the, the coup de gras was flying home. I flew into a class nine typhoon in Hong Kong and was locked in the Hong Kong airport for 26 hours. <laughs> Yes. I'm being shit on. Yeah. I'm being shit it on. It was just one thing after another. <laughs> Meanwhile, like my relationship was not going well. So the Indolirium ends up being this kind of travelogue through some of the most beautiful parts of Indonesia. And the, the whole time, even though all this stuff is happening, I'm still looking for the light. You know, I'm looking for what's beautiful about this world. So I think it's a meditation on it's a, it's, it's got darkness. It's got light. It's got like some harrowing travel. <laughs> <laughs> tales and it's everything that happened in that three month period if you have a situation like being surrounded by a, a group of angry villagers how soon will you then write about it after like what's your what's your process of actually remembering those details so that you can get it down onto paper well that one I wrote about right away so I just wrote out the details yeah. right away right. Hold, hold on to the spear real quick I, yeah. I need to bust out my notes on my well, iPhone no just... like that at that point I'm just kind of like nobody move nobody get hurt man. wait tell, like, tell like... me this tell me that story please all right so uh, the story is I was in Lombok Indonesia I'm sure you've been there I have and um Best, best wave in the world is in Lombok. There you go. Well, I was no, I was heading there, de, down de, to, on the way to Desert Point. Desert Point. Yeah. yeah. So I was heading to Desert Point with a friend of mine who lived in Sangigi, and his brother was driving us. <clears throat> and so, Indonesian guys. And <clears throat> so uh, we, we take a wrong turn. We don't end up in Desert Point. We end up at the top of a hill. And down the way is this bay that we I'd never seen before. It's kind of off map in a way. Like it wasn't. You know, the Lonely Planet book didn't have it. We had no, no writer had been there. And because it was the wrong turn, it ended up there. And, and a friend of mine in Bali is a, a photographer named Jason Wolcott, who's in the kite surfing world. And he's always saying, hey, if you find some cool kite spots nobody's seen before, you got to let me know. Because he knows that I'm all over East Indonesia. You know, I, I've, covered, I've been to 50 plus islands in Indonesia. So I get to some places because of the Lonely Planet experience that often people who even live in Bali don't get to and so <clears throat> i'm uh we we see down below is this gorgeous striped turquoise bay with great swell and just like heavy metal wind and it's just rocking and i'm like that is the perfect place for jason i got let's go check it out so i said let's go check that beach out so we drive through and there's like a police checkpoint we don't really make take take much from that I mean, there's nobody there and we're like all right the police checkpoint where the cops are not there we keep going and we get to this amazing beach, and there's a couple of policemen taking photos, and it's just like this amazing virginal beach with a little village behind it. And I'm taking notes, and I'm stoked. You know, I've got like that stoke from finding a place off the map and going to put it down as a place to go. And so uh, I'm taking all the requisite notes, and then we're heading back to the car, and I start talking. The villager kind of pops up, and he says hello, and I'm kind of saying hi in, in my Indonesian. And he's like, oh, you speak so well, which is he's just being polite, you know, as it goes. And But it was the typical kind of talk about cliche, cliche talk you'll have with someone who's being cool to you because you're trying in their language that you might have. But it didn't strike me as anything wrong. But we get back to the car and I see that my friend is kind of anxious to get in the car and he's just barking at his brother, open up the door, open up the door. And I'm like, why is he so, why is he getting so agitated? Because it's not normal. He's not like that. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever. And I, but he had been talking to that villager 
And all of a sudden, we're driving, and we see a procession of villagers coming towards the road, coming towards us. But I don't still don't notice anything because yeah, they have spears, and some of them have like the 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 sapit, which is like the sickle they use in the rice fields. But you know, often in in kind of the back roads of Indonesia, you'll see villagers kind of practicing for ceremonies. Uh, so it didn't strike me as anything unusual. Uh, because I'd seen that before, I'd, especially in Lombok, I'd seen it before where people are practicing in their clothes from the fields, but they're not all dressed up in their ceremonial dress, but they're practicing for upcoming ceremonies. So it's not that big a deal. And I didn't notice it. I'm still like texting Jason saying, I've got a place for you. It's amazing. I'm, I'm texting him. And uh, and all of a sudden they kind of stop the car. They they fan out and block the road and they come around and they knock and it knocks on the window and driver rolls down his window and there's the mouthpiece is this this short kind of fierce woman is kind of the mouthpiece of this village and she's like demana bang bang demana bang bang which means where's bang bang where's bang bang and uh he's like who what we don't know we're not from here we don't know who you're talking about you know they're like they're she's like you know where's bang bang where's bang bang you better tell us where he is more people are coming and there's already like 50 of them and this village of 250 people or so and we're like how many more people are coming and and all of a sudden i start looking around and there's a guy to my immediate right the windows go down and they're looking in and there's a guy to my right who's got like death in his eyes you know and he's got this he's got this spear and he's just glaring at me and down below to my right is my backpack that has my passport my computer my hard drive my wallet with all my credit cards i mean everything's in that thing and over to my left is another guy with a spear kind of looking at me as well and they're like you know we know you have him we know you you know who bong bong is and we're going to kill you right now and so the story was Back uh, about 30 years ago, um, and this was common in those days, uh, you know, some Jakarta based business people would go to these outer islands and they would make deals with villagers and say, hey, we're going to buy this piece of property and we'll give you money now. You don't have to move now. Uh, but when we come back, we're ready to build. We're going to get we're gonna, you're going to have to leave. And so someone had done that uh, in, you know, this is this is like classic Saharto era kind of stuff that was going on. And someone had made a deal like that for that beach in that and their village. And so they had come in, you know, 25 years later and said, OK, it's time for you to go. But by then that money had been spent. And so a group of those villagers got together and kind of negotiated and said, hey, that money was paid to our parents. That money's gone. We can't afford to go anywhere. Where are we going to go? And so they made. They started negotiating again for a second deal. And the head of those negotiations was a, a villager named Bong Bong, and he negotiated a settlement of like seventy thousand U.S. dollars, right? Which is like, you know, not good. It's like you know, five hundred a head, basically five hundred dollars a head for their entire beautiful virginal beach and their entire village. And then Bong Bong took off with all the money, and so that's what it was. And they thought I was in league with the hotel developers. And so they thought I was part of that crew and they were going to find Bong Bong and they were going to take their money and they were going to kill me if they had to. And so that was the story. And so I'm just kind of waiting there. And luckily I had a copy, a dog-eared copy of my research copy of Lonely Planet to my right. And eventually they started listening to us. We're like, you know, we're not from here. We don't know your, we don't know your problems. I mean, I'm not doing any of the talking. I'm just like sitting there silently. You had a, you had a guide who spoke. In the yeah, name. my friend from Singigi and then his brother, they were doing all the talking and I'm just sitting there. And finally they look at the book and they're like, oh, Saja tourist, just a tourist, just a tourist. And I'm like... Yeah, man, I'm just a tourist. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. And then they just said, okay, 
you can go, but don't come back here. And we're like, don't worry. <laughs> that will not make it. Into the- <laughs> this place is not a place to go. <laughs> And so that was it. We went on. And, I, and a part of me, as we drove on, I was like, I wonder if I was really that close to death or not. And I ended up at a dive camp um, run by a, a German-American guy that owns this dive camp on uh, in South Lombok. And I said, what do you think? You know, what do you think? Do you think I was close to dying? And he goes, you know, when I first moved here, he had just moved his location to that spot. And he goes, when I first moved there, uh, there was a pickup soccer game. And someone was killed over the pickup soccer game. And he said, in Lombok, if someone tells you they're going to kill you, I believe them. And so it, it could have been dicey. And I, when, I got, when, I, when that story came out, when I was telling friends, a good buddy of mine's like, dude, you missed your chance. That was your chance to be, uh, <laughs> to be world famous. <laughs> It would have been. Yeah. I would have been like on everybody's ticker at the bottom. You know, travel writer fragged yeah. by villagers was in deep loved, Indonesia. Loved by many. <laughs> we heard he was a cool dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. Indonesia is one of those places where the people are super friendly, like nicest people you'll ever meet in the world. But then you'll hear those kinds of stories. I yeah. was I was on uh, Sambawa once, and we were surfing these great waves, and everyone you see is just friendly, smiling, waving, and then hear a story about uh, someone who robbed a home, and then they were found a village over, and they were tied up and stoned to death in the middle of the square. Yeah, that, and, yeah. And it's this weird mental schism where you're like, huh, I didn't see that. And the cops won't intervene. Those yes. police we saw on the beach walked right by the whole thing that was happening. We were being surrounded by villagers. The cops just walked right on by. They looked at us and just kept walking. They were not going to intervene. And, you know, the thing that happens most um, in those kinds of stories is that often if, if, if you've killed somebody on a motorbike, say, like a truck has run over a motorbike uh, or some other reason, like someone has – it's an auto accident, even if it's the motorbike's fault. If it's in their home village and you killed somebody in their home village, they will find you and they will kill you. Yeah. That's just it. And it's summary execution style and nobody will say anything about it. Have you read the book Shantaram? I have not, but I know it. There's a, there's a story in there about a car crash that happens and the, the guy's guide says, we need to get out of here right away because it was a bad car crash. And then uh, the villagers surround the car yeah. and they pull the, the guy out whose fault it was and... Uh, beat him to death. Yeah, well, you know, I, I um, in and that in that crazy same trip that Indolirium is kind of based on, uh, I came across a truck had just hit a, a woman on a motorbike, and she was lying dead in the street. You could see her just lifeless, blood everywhere, and the truck driver had like the door was open, and the dude was gone. He was gone. He left the truck. He left everything. He was gone. <sighs> And yeah. everyone just was just coming out of their shops. Nobody had really, you know, he was gone already. What perspective do you think, um, or how do you think that these kinds of uh, experiences have shaped you as a person? Because I'm guessing that there are these kinds of uh, mental schisms that you might feel going out to these far out zones and then coming back to um, nice Los Angeles. Yeah, well, I think that in one respect, it makes you realize people who are complaining about things in the in Los Angeles, yeah. especially people who are quite comfortable and are complaining about how our government, you know, during the Obama years, are complaining about how our government's not working and how terrible things are. They need to 
take a, a break and like go see how the real world is and because things are quite stable and working quite well here even with all the problems we're having now the reason we're not there people aren't in the street calling for trump to be taken away or whatever it is is because everyone's comfortable and yeah. we have to work to pay our bills so i think that to a large degree, comfort level is pretty high here. Yeah, and you don't so, see those kinds of riots until people are really starving. I think so. Yeah, you know, like what's happening in Venezuela. Yes. Or something, right? Yeah, I was uh, just gonna. Yeah, I yeah, was yeah. Just thinking about that. Yeah, but so for me personally, I think um, some of that is there. So it kind of has sanded me down. So my tolerance levels, I think, are higher. Uh, I can I can blend in easier. I think I'm more patient now than I've ever been. I think I'm. Uh, I can I can deal with discomfort. You know, one of the coolest people I ever interviewed, a guy named Dave Eubank, who's just made news for uh, he he runs the Free Burma Rangers, and he's he, he that he started that organization as a way to bring humanitarian aid to the front lines of the conflict zones in Myanmar and the outer ethnic provinces of Myanmar, and now he's taken his army to uh, you know the ISIS front lines, and so he was he he rescued uh, a girl in Mosul. And, you know, his his photo was taken. He was he was in every newspaper and he's been interviewed on every news network now. Um, But one of the coolest things he ever said to me was, uh, you know, never be ruled by comfort or fear. You know, we all crave comfort and we all get scared. The, The key is never be ruled by those two things. And so I think, you know, the best thing that travel does and 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 not just travel, but working to create a life based on your ideals and on what you love and what you're passionate about is there's going to be a lot of moments of discomfort and a lot of opportunities to question yourself. And the key is don't be ruled by the desire for comfort in the wake of all in, in, you know, when you're in the middle of the storm, because uh, that will just lead you away from where you want to go. And so get to get used to discomfort. It's you don't want to live there. But if you can take it, it's going to help you get where you want to go, I think. So if there's someone listening to this, they're driving in their car and they're saying, fuck yeah, I'm ready. I want to do this. Uh, Are there any first steps that you would recommend to them if they want to get on this life of um, traveling and writing and doing something similar to what you do? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, the business has changed so much that it's just different than it used to be. There's lots of different avenues people are taking. Uh, you know, we make fun of the content creators, but but that's an avenue people take. You know, you can you can develop stories on Instagram, you can develop an audience on YouTube, you can blog, and that could be the best way to get noticed and and kind of own a certain segment. You know, maybe it's of the world, but I think ultimately that the idea is to travel and write as often as possible. And the way I started was I would look at the masthead of a publication I wanted to get into, and I would kind of look at who the top editors were, and then I'd go down to like the associate editors, and I would try to find them. The associate and, editors. Yeah, you want to try, the, try to find the ones that will take your call, right? And so, you know, if I have an idea for a specific magazine, I would find uh, a, a junior editor at that magazine, and I'd approach them. And often in those days, I would like, I'd have to find the phone number and call them. These days, you can find usually find somebody on Twitter or through the social networks and find a way to reach out to them. Um, ideally, you get on the phone and you say, "Hey, I've got this great idea. Who can I email 
uh, about you know my pitch to, and they will tell you who the right editor is, and then you can write in the in the subject heading, hey, uh, you know, so and so sent me, and so then they'll read it. The key is getting your idea even considered. That's the hardest thing when you start. So that's what I do. That's what I would do. Um, you know, I could I still sometimes do that if I'm if I want to get to a publication that I haven't been in before. I'll I'll usually try to find a friend who's written for them or a contact that I can get referred to. Any book recommendations? Ah, yeah. Uh, there's a book that just came out by Marcus Erickson. It's called Junk Raft, and Marcus is the head of an organization called Five Gyres. He's made his mission to fight uh, marine plastic yeah. pollution, um, and you know. But this book is actually a cool love story, adventure story about when he built a a raft, a junk out of plastic bottles and sailed it from Los Angeles to Hawaii. So it's part about that. It's part about the whole marine plastic pollution um, issue, which is huge. You know, uh, there's going to be more plastic by weight than fish in the ocean by 2050. Coke produces 100 billion single-use plastic bottles a year. Um, A truckload of plastic enters the ocean every minute. I mean, it's a big, big problem. And uh, he's one of the, the... the main guys fighting it and documenting it. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's a great read and I highly recommend it. I've seen junk, the raft out at burning man before. Oh really? Yeah. 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 He they, came out. There. I remember that when he went, brought it out there. Yeah. They trucked that thing out there for sure. And you know, I'm a, I want to get Marcus on my podcast. You got to, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, full disclosure, I'm a five gyres ambassador and I'm definitely a Marcus Kool-Aid drinker and he's one of the greats and, uh, just a great adventurer, amateur paleontologist, uh, you know, a PhD Iraq war veteran from the first Gulf war veteran. Um, and, uh, and one of the, one of the, the most cutting edge environmentalists we have out there. And I think, you know, marine plastic pollution is second only to global climate change as, as those are the two top issues facing humans right now. I really believe that. And, uh, you know, there's, there's plastic and ar- Arctic ice cores, there's plastic in our hair, you know, there's, there's evidence of plastic in our hair, in our cells, because it's entering the food chain through the fish. And um, it's a big, big problem that can be fixed. Uh, and you should read this book. It's really cool. Yeah. Will you make an intro to Marcus for me? I'll, I'll have him on the podcast. Hell yeah. All right. Before we take off, where can people find you and what are the books that you've written that people need to read? Uh, so I've written One Breath, Free Diving Death, and The Quest to Shatter Human Limits. Uh, and so that's the, the story of life and death of Nicholas Mavoli. It's kind of an into the wild story about America's greatest free diver. Um, and then I've got Indolirium that's coming out August 15th. And you, that's an ebook you can find on Amazon. Um, and my website is adamskolnick.com. You can find a lot of material that I've written in the past. And I'm on the socials at Adam Skolnick. Right on, man. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, bro. All right. That's our show. Be sure to get in touch with Adam if you enjoyed it. My guests always love hearing from you. I'm going to link to a bunch of Adam's work on my website, kyle.surf. You can also go over to my website, kyle.surf, to donate to the podcast, get in touch with me. I'm also on Instagram. I try and reply to all of my messages. I'll see you after Burning Man. In the meantime, get outside, get in the ocean. If you're not near an ocean, get in a stream. If you're not near a stream, get in a bathtub. I'm going to leave you with a song by Light the Band called What Was Her Name? And I will link to their band page underneath the show notes under Adam's episode. Have a great day.